Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to an animal edition of Biblical Time Machine. Helen, we finally, we're finally getting around to talking about our pets. <laughs> we are, we are. It's what we wanted to do all the time, isn't it? <laughs> That's what you wanted to do. So, uh, yeah, I, I've, uh, I've, I've met a couple of your your dogs. They pop in every once in a while. You, you do have two dogs. I've only got one. You only have one? No, I've only got one. Oh. It, she, she just, she makes. I mean, she, you'd think that we had at least three or four. I mean, she's, she's everywhere, and she's, uh, yeah, she's, she's only two. She's a two-year-old spaniel, mm. so she's just everywhere, and she's chewing everything, and she's always that nose. It gets into everything. <laughs> and what's, what's, what's doing, her name? Yeah. She's called Tessa. Tessa. Miss Tessa. Oh, very nice. Mm-hmm. Well, you're going to hear mm-hmm. in this. So we're talking with Lloyd Llewellyn Jones today. Lloyd is amazing. He knows everything about everything. And of course, that includes <laughs> animals. Does. And uh, we do get to hear a little bit from his dog during the episode. So if you hear a little barking in the background, that's just it's just ambient noise that goes along with today's theme of animals in the ancient world. And I think if we can get that universal translator figured out, I think the dog was probably trying to make a couple good points at some point. I think he was. Yeah. Yeah. It was insistent. It was like, I, he was trying to correct Lloyd something about (laughs) sheep, I think. But, um, if you guys don't know who Lloyd Llewellyn Jones is, he's a professor of ancient history at Cardiff university. Um, he wrote an incredible book that made a big splash uh, a couple years ago called Persians, the age of the great Kings. And he came on and we've talked to him about Esther and, and the Persians and stuff like that. But before that, he wrote a book with uh, a colleague, Sean Lewis called the culture of animals in antiquity, a source book with commentaries. And I don't know, Helen, did you get to leaf through that book at all? It's amazing. Like the, the breath of this thing. Yeah. I know exactly, exactly, and and I'm just amazed at Lloyd. He he has so many interests, and he just seems to be able to kind of be an expert on everything to do with the ancient world. So he's a great guest for our program. But before we get to our conversation, I I just want to thank everyone who has subscribed to the Time Travelers Club through Apple Podcasts. So if you are listening to this podcast through the Apple Podcast app, it is super easy to click a little button right there on the page that says subscribe. And then what you are doing is supporting our show with a monthly $5 donation. And you can join the dozens of other people who have done that already. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Let's get to our conversation with Lloyd. If you ever wanted to know what locusts taste like or how to read the innards of a sheep, this is your this is your episode. So uh, enjoy our conversation with Lloyd Llewellyn Jones about animals in the ancient world. Lloyd Llewellyn Jones, welcome back to Biblical Time Machine. Hello, it's very good to be back. Thank you for having me. You've come and you've talked about so many different things. We did Esther the first time. We oh. did uh, Bathsheba and Harems the, the second time, which was oh, one of my right. favorite episodes. Yeah, yeah. That was a good one. Now we're doing animals. I don't understand what you what you focus. You have no focus, but I love it. I love that you're just all over the board. So yeah, I kind of cast my net wide. I really I do, it. and you know, it keeps me going. Keeps that's me why going. that's why you are here for a record third time, our first third time guest. So we really appreciate hey, it. Fantastic, I'm flowered. So yeah, I was struck when I when I opened up your book, and it's about animals in antiquity, animals in kind of the ancient world, and I realized that, yeah, when I think about history, I just think about human history and and what people were up to. But but that's not the whole picture, obviously. So no, tell no. us a little bit about why we can't really understand the ancient world if we don't talk about animals. Well, I suppose it's because history is not only the study of human affairs because there have never just been human affairs. You know, we have a long integrated past with the wider environment. Mm. Um, And slowly and surely we're beginning to recognize that, of course. More is being done on environmental history of antiquity now than ever before. Mm. Um, But I just realized that, you know, if we don't actually take in 
the idea of animals as part of our history as well, then we're really neglecting uh, a huge chunk of, of what the ancient experience of life really was was all about. Um, and I suppose the, the overarching question which um, Sean Lewis, my co-author, and I were interested in was simply the question, do animals have histories? Hmm. And how can we find histories? Most importantly, from the animal's point of view, as huh? much as possible, what we <laughs> wanted to try to drill down to. Now, no, you know, no donkey has left a memoir, okay? And, you know, we're not, as, we're not <laughs> as naive as to think that. But what can we find out about the lived experience hmm. of animals through the prism of human sources, sure, essentially. Sure. Um, so we, we were determined that this wasn't going to be a book about metaphor and similes, for instance, hmm. you know. Um, you know, the the image of, I don't know, well, yeah, the the the, the sheep in Psalms or um, in the classical world, because this extends right the way through to Greece and Rome, this book as well. You know, owls in Ovid was always our thing that we came back to. No owls <laughs> no in else. Ovid. <laughs> uh, right? Because we really wanted to see these... Be I mean, there is something to be said about metaphor and simile, without a doubt. But we wanted to try to drill down to the, the real experience of animals and animal interactions with humans as best mm. as we possibly could. And we decided to do a real sort of long durée uh, approach and a wide chronology as well, a wide, wide geography as well. So the book goes from the beginning of the Bronze Age right the way through to uh, the, the late antiquity. Uh, and it covers uh, everything from the Iranian plateau west to Britannia, to Britain. So we, we really do, you know, we're dealing with uh, Near Eastern sources, Egyptian sources, Greek and Roman sources, biblical sources. Uh, and what I was really interested in, particularly as, as the book was coming together, Sean and I were identifying patterns more and more. Um, sometimes there are cross currents over centuries and over geographies where animals are thought of roughly in the same way, utilized in the same way. And every now and then there would be a, 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 a seismic shift mm. and suddenly an animal would emerge in one particular society that was thought of completely differently uh, in any other, you know. Uh, it also, of course, shows us the kind of the spread of animal cultures as well as humans move, animals kind of moved mm. with them, or sometimes animals, of course, disappear through overhunting mm. uh, and so forth or exploitation. Um, but the other thing that really kind of appealed to us was to get our knowledge back again of in antiquity, we were in a world dominated by animals. We, we were really part of the food chain mm. back then, you know. Um, I'm always reminded of that wonderful uh, little expression in, in the book of Amos, you know, the day of the Lord will be like a man running away from a lion uh, only to fall into the, you know, the paws of a bear. And then he'll go into his own house and he'll lean upon the wall and a snake will bite him, oh. Amos says. And I think, you know, that's, that's the challenge of living in antiquity, really, you know, where there's so many things out there to get you. And nowadays, oh. we we can live our lives, not mm. Helen and I, because we're animal obsessives, mm -hmm. but we could, we could live our lives completely without ever coming into contact with a human, with an, with an animal at all. And, I, I find it, and I find it really sad. Um, first of all, I mean, there's this whole idea that, you know, um, what we consume, we're so removed from now. Um, so, you know, we can go to the supermarket and just pick up a steak without ever realizing that there was a process of, <laughs> of killing, breeding and killing an animal behind it. Uh, or likewise, I'm, I'm always saddened when I go to the local park and uh, I take my dogs with me and there are children who have been trained by their parents to be afraid of dogs. You know, it's, it's very common now, I'm finding. So we're so removed from the animal experience. And what, what we, we, Sean and I were really fascinated by was, was to get ourselves back into that headspace where we're actually part of an animal world ourselves. Part of that, I suppose, is like that whole idea is, you know, we, we decided we even wanted to question, okay, what is a human then? Mm. You know, do, do, how do humans fit into this bigger picture of, of the animal world? And if you, you know, if we go way, way back in time to the Epic of Gilgamesh, one of those, you know, first ever literary masterpieces there, we have Gilgamesh, who is this very wicked human king in the city of Ur. Uh, but next, uh, but his best friend is this, this guy called Enkidu, 
who is a hairy wild man who runs uh, like Tarzan, I suppose, you know, through the steppes, making friends with gazelles and, and all sorts of things and drinking from water holes. And it's the moment when he is acculturated. You know, he sleeps with his first woman. He eats his first bread as the first... Um, cup of, of beer, as you see, that uh, he changes into this human and the gazelles no longer want to be with him, mm. you know. So there's, there's a break. But people, you know, whoever authored Gilgamesh understood there was a time when we were much closer to the animal world. I love the way that as you're talking, not only huh. is, there, is there a bark, but there's there's this black paw kind of <laughs> yeah. grabbing onto you. I was going to say, uh, yeah. Lloyd, look out, there's a bear behind you. <laughs> Yanto has woken up. Everyone. It did look like a bear. <laughs> can we... <laughs> Hopefully the animals, the menagerie will allow us to to talk about them for a little while. But if we can go, we are a biblical time machine. So to go right back to Genesis, to the Mm. start of all of this. So we've got these two creation stories, haven't we, in Genesis? Mm. And um, we've got talk about God creating animals according to their kind. Yes, that's right. right. And then Adam naming animals Mm. and and, and, and all of this. are, are the differences in these two creation accounts or, or, or what are they telling us about the way sort of, you know, he, ancient Hebrews sort of thought about yeah. our relationship to animals? Absolutely. They're interesting. Well, I think the first thing that we can deal with there is the whole issue of taxonomy. Yeah. Um, because what we have, of course, you know, in, in the Genesis text is the idea of things that crawleth upon the earth, things that yes. flyeth in the air and things that swimmeth in the waters. Okay. Well, of course, you know, Darwin's ideas of taxonomy would challenge that completely. <laughs> so if we uh, if we go to some uh, ancient sources, for instance, the tomb of Khnumhotep in Middle Egypt from the Middle Kingdom, we see this beautiful uh, array of wall paintings of birds, okay, uh, gorgeous birds, and they're all named by their species. And amongst them, flying in the air, are bats as well. Because as far as, you know, the taxonomy of Genesis would go, a bat is a bird, really. It's a thing mm. that flieth, you know, and not, not a mammal whatsoever. Um, and likewise, animals, therefore, that inhabit ground and water, hippopotamus, crocodile, you know, leviathan, behemoth kind of thing, mm. what exactly are they in the ancient mind. So straight away, we're dealing with issues of of taxonomy, and they are not as clear as modern science would have. And who's to say who's right uh, in some of this? You know, Um, Aristotle dealt with the same problems as well, but it's the Near Eastern and and biblical materials that I find really interesting. So um, to give an example, in ancient Sumerian, in Mesopotamia, in Sumerian language, the word for a lion literally translates as a glorious dog, (laughs) a glorious dog, which means that they wouldn't even see a lion necessarily as feline. They see it as canine, Mm, you know? So they're a huge, huge... And sometimes the the animal that they're trying to describe um, is an amalgamation of things they know. So uh, an elephant in Sumerian, which I suppose they would have only seen in foreign luxury trade from, say, India, an elephant is a water ox with a protuberance. <laughs> so like, an, you know, with, with a thing that sticks out, which makes a lot of sense. So I think that when we when we drill back to, to the earlier stuff, um, this is what we're finding. And I suppose Adam would be naming animals mm-hmm. in that kind of comparative way, really, you know? <laughs> um, basically what he sees is, is what he would have called them. <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, I would, I would love, okay, to, I would love to, uh, I would love to go back and see Adam, and, and, and <laughs> if he had the same idea, he's like, all right, dog, a uh, big dog <laughs> that's scary, big dog with a big nose in the water, uh, <laughs> little swimming but, dog. But, but this is the way in which ancient taxonomies actually work. You know, there's this myth, isn't there, about Eskimos having hundreds and hundreds of words for mm. snow. Oh, right. Well, I can say categorically that in Mesopotamia and probably in early Hebrew as well, there were many, many dozens of words for sheep, Mm. for instance, Mm. because these people are living around this this animal type day in, day out. 
and they look at the nuances, not only mm. for terms of breeding and what's right for the temple, what's right for um, sacrifice and so forth, uh, but j- just generally. So we have these huge amount of terms, you know, um, sheep with brown shaggy fleece, um, sheep which is one year, uh, year old, ripe for sacrifice, mm. uh, sheep which has green diarrhea. Really, really. Oh. These are all categories that can be found um, in the text, you know, and um, in ancient Mesopotamia, of course, you know, we, we have a very bureaucratic obsession amongst Mesopotamians. Uh, and I think all of these are listed in that, in that kind of way. So they knew their animals by close observation. But the naming thing, Helen, is really interesting because I suppose what is going on in that story in Genesis is the fact that when we name something, we have ownership of it, mm. you know? And I think that's what's really going on in, in that dictum from, from God to, for Adam to name. And, of course, there's a, a long sort of history uh, in the Near East for this this idea of gods or heroes being masters over animals mm. all the time. So we see this very common um, iconographic motif, for instance, where a hero will hold, say, two lions by the tails in, in either hand, you know, <laughs> this is the mastery of it. Or sometimes we see a hero standing with his back, with his foot on the back of a horse or the back of uh, a panther. And again, you know, it's, it's that idea that we have dominion over the animals. Um, yeah. So it's the same idea then, basically, because in the first creation narrative, mm. we have the idea of, cre- of uh, d- dominion over yeah, creation. And, and so in, and then the second one, it's a naming. But it's the it, naming but it's thing, the same, absolutely. I think the it's the same principle then. is, is ah, what's right, going on yes. there. Yeah. Yes. And then, of course, later on in Genesis, we get the, the covenant with, with, um, with Noah, which then says, you know, remember, I gave you dominion over all these things. Hmm. Now you can eat some of them as well you know so we we move on constantly as well in that relationship that we have with animals too um you know there was always the possibility that we would be the eaten but now we're allowed to eat back uh, as well <laughs> yeah do you think i mean you think that is saying something so like the fact that you have these you know heroic iconography of you know stopping them i mean it was that just a representation of because like you said in the ancient world like there was great fear of actually being killed by these animals so to to be a hero you were this person who kind of impossibly controlled the wild animals or i think there's something to do with that but i think it's more cosmological than that because animals could be used in human societies to represent chaos of course you know mm-hmm. the wildness beyond the city wall was something to be frightened about and if you think of like the earliest kind of imagery we have in human history in cave paintings for instance there we see mankind among the animals bison lions bears whatever they're there when mankind starts building cities and putting walls around them and creating an us and them an urban and a wild space this is when mankind has to create animals of sort of supersonic strength hmm. or they create um, hybrid animals, you know, a, a bull with a human face or a, or a lion with uh, eagle's wings or something. You know, it's like the imagination has to take over because suddenly you're distancing yourself hmm. from the reality of living close hmm. to the animal. So I think in terms of what is going on with the kind of master of animals motif is that the animal represents the the chaos of a kind of pre-creation or a pre-urban society Mm. and uh it is up to to mankind to keep that under control and of course the ultimate person who has to do that is the king Mm. and this is why we see from uh oh from uh the third uh millennium onwards this constant motif of the king very often shown hunting lions because the lion is is kind of the ultimate, um, you know, terror force, really. Mm. Uh, and of course, um, the the best known of these motifs is the uh, the lion hunt release of Ashurbanipal, which are now in the British Museum from Nineveh. I mean, they they are quite uh, remarkable. And what it shows is not the king going out in the wild to hunt these lions down, which he kills with abandon, but these lions have been captured already, and they're brought into a kind of space like a like almost like a bull ring where they're released and goaded into growling and charging at the king in a chariot who then 
systematically slaughters them all. Mm-hmm. And we see in the final scenes of this, um, the carcasses of these lions being laid out before an altar, the altar of the goddess Ishtar, as libations of wine are poured over them. So this is a sacrament, really. This is a this is a motif for the king keeping order oh. over the possibility of the chaos of creation. And I think this is why, you know, in 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 the Hebrew Bible, in Genesis, in Judges, for instance, um, it's it's not a coincidence that Samson goes up against a lion for instance, you know, I mean, he's taking on those kingly qualities mm-hmm. as the judge of the people and all this kind of stuff as well. So I think that's a, that's the deep set motif behind animals. It's just that the animal motif itself sometimes changes from society to society. Um, so the bull is another uh, very important symbol that needs to be kind of quelled or conquered, or else the god, the, the, the god figure, enters into the bull, you know, be, takes on the strength and virility of the bull. And that, of course, is, is well represented in the in the Hebrew Bible, um, in the figure of, of El, uh, of course, mm. you know, who takes on this kind of bovine form and the golden calf and all of this kind so, of so. stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, all right. Well, I, I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to ask about a couple biblical animals and how and what we can, mm. uh, what we can yeah, learn about, about them. So, First one that makes an appearance, the first little star is is the snake in the Garden of Eden. Oh, um, yeah. You know, we had a great episode about Satan and and where we very clearly recognize that mm. that snake is not called Satan. There is no reference no, to the snake being anything but a talking snake. So why That's would exactly right. why would the uh, authors of that story have have put the snake in that position? What would the what did, what did ancient people think about snakes? They thought that well. The snake has a deep, deep kind of mythology and resonances across the whole of the ancient Near East. But many of them thought that the snake was chthonic. So it, it, it emerged from the underworld okay. um, and therefore takes on a, a, a very kind of, you know, different quality uh, of experience, you know, or, or of life or of being, um, I suppose. The, the snake is also thought in some ancient societies to have been... Um, self-reproducing as well so it didn't need a mate so therefore if if you wanted to 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 create a symbol of the unknown the mysterious the unapproachable the ununderstandable then i suppose the snake is actually a a pretty good Mm. figure to go to um in that respect and it's kind of interesting isn't it um how often we find uh in near eastern and Egyptian sources, the snake also being linked to magic uh, as well. So we have, for instance, um, a series of uh, remarkable bronze serpents, long, like staffs, really, with curly kind of, you know, bodies, uh, which were used in magical practices in Egypt, for instance. And that really corresponds with uh, the scenes that we have at Pharaoh's court mm. in Exodus. Do you remember where Moses mm. is told to put down his staff so it'll turn yeah, yeah, uh, into rod. A, yeah, his rod so it'll turn into a serpent. So I think there's something about this this creature, um, a creature of the dark, a creature of cavities, this self-reproducing thing, which is uh which is magical and remarkable and marvelous, and of course to be feared, because there were so many varieties of snakes in antiquity, <laughs> and people had to know which ones were dangerous and which ones were not. And therefore, again, in the kind of lexical text we get from Babylon and Assyria in particular, we have lists and lists and lists of snakes and which ones you know d- d- to look out for. Um, we also, of course, have many, many magico-medical incantations about removing snake bites uh, you know, I mean, that was a real a reality for, for people. Many people would have died of this. Mm. Um, and we have lots of evidence for uh, snake catchers and snake charmers as well. In fact, the book of Jeremiah has got one of the best descriptions of a snake charmer, you know, the sitting on the ground cross-legged with a flute kind of thing. Uh, and these were employed to to get snakes out of the house mm. because of course once they once they were entered into the house they could burrow away they could they could actually get into the mud brick walls of most people's dwellings and therefore do untold damage uh with within the habitation as well so they were things to be really feared and therefore you can see why all this kind of magic and mystery is is really attached to them 
So I guess by the time, you know, the Genesis story is written, say in Babylonia in the 6th century BCE, there's a huge, huge snake tradition to draw on by that time, uh, I, I guess. I just don't understand why Eve didn't run away screaming, really. She that's, had a conversation. Switch, well, he, you know? and, you know, he yeah, was yeah. talking. He was, he was a charming, crafty snake. <laughs> he was charming, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, what about goats? I mean, we mentioned oh. uh, uh, sheep already, but um, yeah. I think I think in your book you say that there's there's something like seven different words for goats, and and at often the, at the least, absolutely. And in, <laughs> and in Sumerian, again, with, as with sheep, there are more and more and more. Uh, the goat is really interesting because the goat can be uh, used for different sorts of uh, purposes, not only obviously for food for drink and for sacrifice mm-hmm. as well, uh, but also um, as, uh, again, a magical kind of symbol too. The kind of lustfulness of the goat, of the, of the, the billy goat, oh, yeah. was proverbial uh, in the ancient Near East. Many, <laughs> many true? stories. I mean, are they really, are they really well, sort of... yes, keen? yes, to be honest, yes. <laughs> From the research we did, and believe me, we had to do a lot of... Uh, animal sort of uh, zoology for, for this book. <laughs> yes, so they, they are lustful and they're also completely rapacious. They will eat anything mm, and everything. Yeah. There are these stories that Greeks tell of, you know, islands just with goats on who eventually, you know, the goats will starve to death because they've eaten everything <laughs> in their surrounding. Um, and so they they are there and we have some fantastic um some fantastic advice given to new mothers about their newborn babies in Mesopotamia, which says, don't give your baby goat's milk to drink because it'll turn out to be as randy as the goat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so what we ingest, you know, what we eat is what we are, basically. So they were very uh they were very careful about the goat. They they didn't they 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 understood that it's a, a, a practical animal. Um, but they didn't have the kind of uh, appeal of the sheep, for instance. You know, the sheep gets a much uh, gentler press uh, across the ancient Near East, and certainly in the Hebrew Bible, of course. I mean, it's it's one of the major motifs, and and into uh, and into the New Testament as well. There's there's a real kind of compassion uh, about the sheep, um, which which the goat seems to lack. I'm I'm always amazed, you know, when we when we think about Psalm 23. I mean, it must be the most familiar passage of the Bible to virtually anybody. You know, the Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. That's written from the point of view of the sheep, of course. Hmm. You know, the, the 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 author of Psalms is able to see himself as a sheep, and and to understand <laughs> what goes on. You know, in in this relationship between God and hmm. man between the shepherd and the sheep. And in fact, there are incredible things which you can get out of that psalm. So I did a lot of research um, looking at shepherds' reports of sheep behaviour. And so we find things like, um, uh, he lay me down beside still waters. Sheep are terrified of running water and they will not settle if there is running water. So any shepherd would have to dig a little irrigation ditch from a uh, from a running source so that there would be a cool a, a cool pool that they could drink from mm-hmm. but they would they would be comfortable around that but not around running water. Um, green pastures of course. I mean those such things, you know, we think of English meadows, don't we, when we think of green pastures. <laughs> but that's something that Judeans would never have known of at all. Mm. Green pastures of course, what the what the psalmist is referring to there are those tiny little sprigs of green that come up with the morning dew. And it means that the shepherd has to get its flock out early mm. so that it can actually get those tiny bits of you know of, of nourishment that it needs as quickly as possible. Uh, yea, uh, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's quite true that um, sheep, of course, are are, um, are 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 instinctively will follow. But when shepherds walk through these very narrow valleys, which we find in the Judean desert and in Jordan as well, um, reports 
you know, from, from the turn of the 20th century say that the shepherds instinctively know to walk amongst their sheep at mm. that point, not ahead of their sheep. And that's an incredible metaphor for what the, the psalmist is saying about God, isn't it? You know, he is among us mm. at the most terrifying moments, you know, as, as we, as we journey uh, on our lives with him. So, you know, this is the level that, that actually understanding how animals operate hmm. will really enhance our, our understanding of, of what is going on um, in, in some of these biblical texts. And therefore, you know, when you look at Jesus's um, stories about sheep, they become so much mean, more meaningful. That idea of the lost sheep um, is incredible. That I read a, an amazing report from 1920 um, from Palestine. Uh, a British man had gone there and he witnessed this. He said that um, young one, young, one young Palestinian lad didn't have many sheep. He only had like 10. And they knew him, you know, and he knew his sheep as well. Mm-hmm. But the government forced all of the a kind of a head count of sheep. And so many hundreds of sheep were put together into this one pen to be counted. And then afterwards, you know, um, they were given back, but there was a lot of chaos going on, as you can imagine. But this shepherd was able to hear his lamb, hmm. distinctively hear his lamb, and the lamb could hear his voice. Or sometimes we, we hear of him blowing a, a pipe, you know, a shepherd's pipe. And this lamb came trotting through these many, many dozens of sheep <laughs> to, to come back to his shepherd. I mean, that, it's an incredible image, isn't it, you know, of Christ looking for that lost lamb. He will not give up. You know? And it's very similar to John's gospel too, isn't it? The idea that Jesus knows his sheep by name. Precisely, precisely. Which sounds that's, crazy that's exactly. to us. It does, but after it what does. But, said, yeah, yeah, but they really do, you know. They yeah. know their personalities. You know, they know exactly how these, these animals are going to work. So, yeah, it's, it's you know, the sheep is a very rich source um, for us. And, of course, you know, even things like uh, the idea of, of sacrifice, of course. Um, what, we, what we don't find... Incidentally, in, in the Hebrew sources at all, but I do wonder if it didn't go on, is um, divination from from sheep sacrifice because across the Near East, of course, you would never just sacrifice a sheep and then you know just send it onto the Holocaust to burn. I mean, you would always read the liver um, for um, for for what it's worth, you know, to tell you what's going on, you know, in your life or in the future. So there's no evidence of that. I don't think I've ever come across. From the Hebrew Bible, which it would which make the um, Hebrews a, a step out of joint with what was going on uh, around the rest of the world. Mm. And I tell you another thing about the goat, actually, on, on that kind of idea, of course, is the idea of the scapegoat too. And this really shows oh. how, oh, yes. how, yeah, how how the goat is not loved mm. in the way that the sheep is at all, because of course you cast all of your sin onto this goat and you send it off into the wilderness to meet its fate. And that's exactly what goes on in Babylonia. Um, uh, and in Assyria too. So uh, even in things like um, medical uh, rituals as well. So you'll take a goat. Um, you will. <laughs> one text says you will put on it on its head the turban of the patient. So you dress <laughs> it up as a patient, and then you put all the illness onto this goat, oh, wow. uh, and then you can kill it and bury it in the household in the in the ground of the house. So I mean, you know, the the. Um, the stories that we get in, in uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus are a, a kind of a soft version, really, of what was happening in Babylon. But this, this goat is not, you know, it can be cast out. And that's the best thing you can say about a goat, really. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I have not hung around a, a ton of livestock, but even like at a petting zoo with their kids... Like the goats yeah. are, the goats are aggressive and they're annoying. They can be and vicious, the, yeah. Absolutely. And the sheep are very pleasant, so I can see why yeah. they would have been like not as cool with the goats. Well, you, yeah. You, you, I mean, you've you've yeah. also got the sense of the sheep, haven't you? I, I mean, you know how stupid sheep can be as well, <laughs> and and that is something that the prophets pick up on all the time you know there's this this play on on israel being like sheep you know for we like sheep have gone astray and all this because like you have no sense do you you know you can't you can't fend for yourself at all uh, is the other image that goes on there okay well what you 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 said something interesting you and you're talking about reading you know the sheep's liver and stuff like that and maybe the hebrews Mm. were different than the the uh people in the world around them so that that brings us to the next domesticated animal that's really popular in lots of parts of the ancient world, which is the pig. So yes. talk to me about how kind of central the pig was to these neighboring uh, to these neighboring societies. And maybe can we figure out why the pig was taboo among the Hebrews, like how that happened? 
Yeah, the, the pig comes very early into the domestication process. By at least 4000 BC, we see evidence of pig rearing and the eating of pigs as well. And very often, um, pigs are closely associated with dogs. Um, they are very often spoken of in the same sentence. They are considered to uh, have the same sort of habits in that a dog and a pig will eat anything, essentially. That's what they're there for. They're kind of refuse collectors um, of antiquity. The pig, of course, is something that can provide plenteous meat, but has no real use beyond that whatsoever. Mm. So you can't get a pig to plow a field, uh, and you can't get a you know a, a pig to give milk. You could try, but you're not going to get much. Um, and so, therefore, the only thing to do with a pig is to eat it. Mm. And in fact, in sites, archaeological sites in ancient Israel, we have many, many hundreds of uh, of sites which where we can clearly see that. Canaanites and indeed ancient Hebrews were eating pigs. Uh oh. There's right. there's no there's no doubt of this whatsoever. Uh. It was so much part of the common diet. Um pig bones have been found in Israelite settlements throughout the Bronze Age into the early Iron Age. So I think that what's happening with the dietary laws, especially about pigs, is an attempt, probably in the Babylonian exile, um as goes on with with a lot of these legislations in these law books, is to separate the Israelites mm. from the the peoples who lived around them. Of course, you know, mm. um, just by the very fact that there needs to be a law saying don't eat pork means that everybody's eating pork, right? <laughs> so you know there has to be a cutoff point uh, at at that, and I think this is what we find. But certainly um, in the earlier evidence, you know, we we can see pig. Pig remains absolutely everywhere. Yeah. They were so common. They were they were so popular and so cheap uh, as well. Yeah. But yeah. the later evidence then, so post-exilic, yes, it, changes. It, as far as I know, yeah, archaeological sites yeah. don't changes dramatically. Then, yeah. Ab- absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So we don't have it. So we can we can you know again that's a, a wonderful way in which we can use zoo archaeology to actually plot our way through the composition of the Hebrew Bible as well, you know, because we can see really when dietary laws are most Mm. having their effect. Hmm. And it's not happening until at least the 6th century and the beginning of the return and the establishment of a second temple. That's when we're really finding that. When we're finding, of course, so many other things, aren't we? You know, even with animals operating on that level too. So the dove is Hmm. a really good example too, because, of course, the dove... um, in Second Temple Judaism, is is a is a, a useful substitute for the more expensive lamb or or sheep, hmm. and so we find in Second Temple period Israel a, an almost kind of like battery farming operation and industry breeding doves for the temple economy on on an industrial scale, hmm. really, and of course we see nothing like that before the Second Temple period, and nothing like that in the rest of the Greco-Roman world either. Oh, so we have these dovecots in and around Jerusalem. We have about 100 of them, I think, some of which can hold something like 32,000 pairs of breeding doves. I mean, that is industrial-scale battery is. farming. And all of these are going for sacrifice at the Jerusalem Temple. I mean, wow. that's the turnover that we're dealing with here, you know. So when we read in Luke, you know, Mary and Joseph, mm. you know, Mary going for her purification, getting a dove. I mean, she's just one of many who who are benefiting from that uh, loop in the law or, or whatever you'd like to call it um, that allows that dove sacrifice to occur. But then we see a huge industry is built up around it, you know, sustaining human life, families, mm. workforces in itself as well. And from that is also, of course, you're getting d- um, dove done, which is the most incredible uh, man- manure that can be used for I crops. I did not know that. Well. Dove dung. Absolutely. No. And me. in Jeremiah, during the siege of, of uh, Jerusalem by the Babylonians, the only thing that the Israelites have got to eat, the Judeans, sorry, have got to eat there, is dove dung. 
which is which which is going at something like you know fifty shekels a, a pop or something. Uh, yeah, it, it you know that's that's the last thing that they've got to eat. Wow, I'm so glad when I visited Israel that no one <laughs> tried to offer me dove dug and pass it off as a delicacy. <laughs> wow, it may yet happen. Uh... <laughs> Yes. So, what about donkeys? Because I oh. see, you know, when Jesus goes into yeah. Jerusalem on the yeah. back of a donkey, I always tell my students that the donkeys were sort of the Ford Mondeo of the ancient world. Am I right with that, or have I been misleading them all this time? Well, it's kind of interesting because we think of the donkey, yes, as as the humble thing, don't we? I mean, that's what mm. we like to see generally. But I think that the the donkey is is the Mercedes of the ancient Near oh, East, ooh. really, because the earliest references we have um, to donkeys are um, animals which are uh, ridden by kings and queens. Mm. Um, there's a very, and very... And the judges, exactly. A very, mm. very famous image um, from the Temple of Deir al-Bakhri in Luxor, Egypt, of the Queen of Punt, who is enormously fat, um, <laughs> standing next to this terrified, timorous-looking donkey... <laughs> And the entire graphic inscription says the Queen's donkey. And of course, to hear that, you know, you know, well, David rides on his donkey, of yeah. course. And I think that's what Jesus is emulating mm, there, of course, mm. is King David. Solomon goes down for his um uh, Coronation. uh anointing, yeah, on the back of a donkey as well. Mm. So I think in a pre-horse world, you know, where the horses really are are for this super elite, um, the donkey retains its kind of bronze age dominance. Hmm. In a, in the way, so I think when Jesus is entering into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey, um, he is properly the second King David. Hmm. Uh, I think that's you know, and all of these garments have been thrown before him hmm. as well. You know, like a royal ro- royal road is being prepared for him there. I think hmm. so. Yeah, I think I think um, yeah, our, our visions that we have of the of the humble donkey uh, need to be dismissed uh, entirely. But of course, the the donkey was. Um, the kind of did the heavy lifting in in antiquity. Um, it is the the animal that did the the big trade routes, crossing deserts uh, and so forth, um, carrying panniers, you know, loading up with uh, for for work. We have very very disturbing and sad stories of misused donkeys. Um, the most famous one, I suppose, is a uh, uh, first century CE uh, Apuleius's uh, Golden Ass, a, a, a very famous Roman text, of course, where there we have a human who is kind of magically um, turned into a donkey, but still retains all of his human faculties. But he's there in the stall you know, with the manger in front of him. And he says to the reader, oh, you know, my poor companion donkeys, we're full of welts and beatings and, you know, broken hooves because, you know, we're not looked after at all. But then you compare that to some beautiful little ostraca that we have from Egypt, from Ramesside Egypt, where some workman has sketched a picture of his donkey on it. And he says, Behold my donkey. She is a beautiful donkey. So, you know, Aww. you also get the sense that, you know, people love their animals too. And just like in the you know, contemporary world, they can be loved and they can be abused in, in mm. equal measure. Yeah. The, the donkey is uh, a very important animal. Is it ba- Balaam's ass? Right? That's right. The, the, the talking one. The only, the only animal in the Bible that talks. There's, there's no other tradition at all. It seems, you know, well, you the, know, snake, well, the, the snake, the snake talks. Oh, the snake, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then that. is, it the, is the, that the only other animal that talks? Yeah, yeah. Balaam's donkey is the only other one wow. that talks. And we're not even sure if it's donkey, actually. It could well be a mule, yeah. of course. We're, we're not really sure. But yeah, but yeah, I, I, I just wonder, that there probably was a long tradition of of talking animals uh, in <laughs> in in hebrew mythology and in hebrew folklore because they're found absolutely everywhere sure. and and very often you know um, animals are used kind of in comic skits and things um across the the ancient world uh, to show a kind of topsy-turvydom of nature mm. so there's a, a wonderful papyrus from ramesside egypt which is now in turin which shows kind of animals taking on human roles very much what disney does mm. you know in things like robin hood and stuff yeah, yeah. you know and there's a great scene where a lion is uh 
sitting down on a on a little chair and in front of him is a gaming board a sort of chess game and he's playing the game of chess senet is the, the name of the game with a gazelle and of course the gazelle is his natural prey you know mm. i mean but instead of like playing it out on the in in the wild they're actually playing a game of you know thoughtful chess oh. uh, to, to, to deal out <laughs> who, who's the superior one here and animals are always being used in that kind of way and I suppose this is why animals get used as metaphors and similes a lot in, in the Bible, uh, because it, they have those immediate kind of resonances. You know, we know exactly what you're talking about sure. uh, in this. So in Jeremiah, you know, uh, criticizing some Jerusalem woman, oh, she runs around uh, like a, cam- a she-camel in heat. You know, I mean, straight away, we know exactly what, what that is all about. I mean, but I sometimes but they, they probably knew what that was about. <laughs> well, we can kind I don't of know a lot of she camels. <laughs> but sometimes there are real disconnects as well. So um, I was thinking of you, Helen, when I wrote the section on the fox. Uh, on oh, really? Foxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, because nice. I, I'm always Foxy thinking lady. about that. I'm always thinking about uh, Jesus and uh, his um, idea, of course. <laughs> And his uh, put down of Herod, that fox. Yeah, that Herod, fox. that fox, you know. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that it was to do with slyness. Yeah, fox, is it not? Know? No. Oh, so what is it so about the, then? So the tradition for foxes in the Near East is that they are boastful and braggarts. Uh, oh, well, but, that's, but, that sounds but, more uh, likely, yeah, doesn't it? But ultimately cowards. Uh, so that I think that's perfect for Herod. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. absolutely. Far better than being sly. You know, we've inherited yeah. all that kind of medieval Reynard the Fox tradition, you know, yeah. about sneaking into hens. But no, the ancient Near Eastern, strong ancient Eastern tradition is, is that they are braggarts and cowards, oh, which is really perfect. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can have that one. Okay, for Thank your next you. article, you can. Have Thank that. you. She can. She can make a whole book out of that. She's amazing. Oh, and she will. She will. <laughs> but what about bugs? What about bugs? Because we've bugs. only talked about nice animals here, yeah, but what? Yeah. I mean, there's a whole kind of Oof. other area of like nasty. I mean, well, from my point oh. of view, I hate all of these things, and yeah. and I mean, obviously, people did too in antiquity oh, yeah, because yeah, yeah. you have the plagues, yeah, and absolutely. I mean, locusts, yeah. and so They're tell us about mess. bugs. Locust, one of my favorites, actually. I loved writing my chapter on locusts (laughs) because I never realized there was so much there Mm. to say about them. And as I was researching it, I began to, you know, watch YouTube videos and stuff. And what what really is a plague of locusts? You know, what Mm. does it really look like? Mm. And it's horrific because these things start, um, you know, from one sort of one locust that can feel suddenly threatened or disturbed will fly up obviously making some kind of noise that we can't hear. And within seconds, thousands of these things will congregate into then swarms of tens and hundreds of millions. And they can, well, you know, in the ancient sources, the expression is they block out the sun. Mm. Uh, And you can really Mm. quite imagine it, you know. And, of course, they can strip a, a field of corn bare, within minutes and as they move on and it, they they can only settle down naturally again you know there's nothing man can do for this mm. and i suppose you know if you just think therefore about a plague of locusts what's that really means uh is is an a, a absolute devastation absolute destruction and i suppose this really gives us an a, an in way into say the writings of the prophet joel because there we have two opening chapters of a very short book, which is all about locusts. Mm. And in fact, there, just again, like we have with sheep, the vocabulary in Joel for for locusts, I think there are something like 50 or 60 different locust types hmm. identified by Joel. You know, one-year locusts, um, locusts with four wings, locusts with makes chirping noise. I mean, these people knew their locusts, oh. and that's because they have to, of course, because they are so devastating. So when Joel wants to talk about the day of the Lord and what's mm. really going to come, you know, there will be nothing left after it, is basically what he's saying. It, you know, and people would have understood this. There's an incredible letter that we have um, from the Persian Empire written in um, far off in the east in Bactria, um, and it's preserved on this little in, in Aramaic. It says, uh, right, written to the great king in, in Persia, it says, "We cannot continue work on the wall." 
that we were building for you because somebody has disturbed the locusts mm. and we are terrified that they will swarm and we need to concentrate on getting whatever we can of the harvest in. So they were up yeah. against the so clock, I. you know, in order to save themselves, basically, mm. you know, and be able to eat for the next few months. So that's that's the reality of it. Of course, John the Baptist has his own back, doesn't he? So because <laughs> locusts were also <laughs> great delicacies, them. yeah. Uh, I was in Cambodia earlier this year, and I tried locusts for the first mm. time. And I must that? admit, well, I was popping them in like John the Baptist. I really was. I, I no. found that I really liked them. How yeah. how do you cook them? Or I mean, so what they, what they what, yeah. So there were two ways that I tried, both of which I like. So one <laughs> of them is flash flour fried in uh, in chilies and so forth. Really good. You have a kick. You've got to pick the legs off. I don't know why. I never understood that. But you've got to take the legs off, but otherwise you pop them in. That's not where all the meat is on the leg. I thought maybe. No, exactly like a chicken leg. (laughs) (laughs) But then then the other way, which which I really loved, and it's kind of going down like popcorn, it really was, was chilies in in honey, which is essentially what. uh, Locusts in honey, which is essentially what John the Baptist. That's old John the Baptist recipe. And they were gorgeous because they're crunchy on the outside and soft in the center. Gorgeous. Oh. I also ate red ants as well, which you have in scoops. Lloyd, <laughs> I'm the, just, I'm just horrified. And it is like you. sherbet. <laughs> oh, yeah. this is all for research, you understand. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah. So, and in, in Assyria, we have these wonderful um, depictions on the walls of uh, Nineveh showing a banquet being prepared for Ashurbanipal, and two guys are coming forward with skewers, which are full of locusts which have already been pre-cooked taking to the banquet as well <laughs> so it's it's fascinating isn't it yeah you know i mean that is haute couture and sorry not haute couture at all it's um <laughs> it's what cuisine. do we call it uh, haute cuisine <laughs> yeah cuisine. absolutely for for the for the uh assyrian kings uh, before, what, other, them too. what other bugs do we got we so we, we we do get um bed bugs as well uh, there's a really really great story a second century ce story uh, where St. Paul goes into uh, a house on one of his journeys and um, he realises that the host has given him a bed which is crawling with lice. Mm. And so he, by the, in the name of Christ, he casts them out <laughs> and, they ki- and they kind of scuttle out in a line like a Disney cartoon so that he can have a, a, a good night's sleep and then the next day they all <laughs> take up the the old mattress again, oh. which is fantastic, isn't it? Well, just yeah, plus head lice. A reminder. Really I mean, like you know, we've we've, oh, yeah. we've talked on the episode, we talked on the podcast before about just you know how kind of filthy and disgusting the ancient world would have been. But you got to imagine, oh, yeah. lice and bed bugs; those have to have been yeah, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Ugh. Absolutely. And you know what? The in, in this idea of taxonomy, what um what the ancients and, and the ancient Israelites would have classed as a real vermin. Is a sparrow, interestingly, yeah. because sparrows were seen as uh, pilferers, um, just like mice and rats. They do the same sort of thing. So again, a sparrow in a uh, in a field can you know eat the seed, you know, strip it rare, oh, yeah. and likewise they get into the rafters of the house and so forth as well. Uh, leave droppings. They yeah, yeah. can easily um, pick apart roofs pick apart the straw in mud brick walls. So they're always seen as uh, as the, the vermin, which again makes you think of why does Jesus use the image of a sparrow and mm. one of his sayings, do you remember? You know, you know, you know, um, you know. Consider the lily, consider the sparrow. Right. How much more does God love you? So what again? He is saying there is this is the lowest. This is a vermin of an animal. Oh. You know, we think of sparrows as pretty little things yeah, yeah. chirping around. You know, but that's not there in the ancient mindset at all. These, oh, wow. these were, if he could love this you know, disgusting bird, this disgusting little yeah, thing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, our equivalent of being, you know, if like a rat or, or a pigeon. Yeah. A pigeon. You know, I was going to say a pigeon. You know. Yeah, <laughs> you know, if you can love that, you can. God will love everything. You know? Well, Lloyd, we we have to get to uh, your and Helen's favorite animal in the world, um, which is the dog. So, yes. talk to us about the dog in the ancient world. But I was I was personally curious because it seems to me in the in the Hebrew Bible, at least, you're not getting like positive dog imagery. So maybe just talk about the different ways that people would have seen dogs in the in the ancient world. Yeah, there's a there's a real kind of bipolar attitude to dogs throughout the ancient Near East because 
while certainly we they can see we, people can see them as uh, loyal workers, so the idea of the sheepdog is very important in in ancient Near Eastern texts, and as guard dogs, by and large, of course, they are seen as pariahs. Hmm. You know, they they are not domesticated necessarily. Hmm. They roam around in packs. Um, causing havoc, they they go through the litter. Um, you know, therefore you get these incredible images. You know, a dog returning to his vomit and this kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. they're seen with a certain disgust, and this is why I think so often they are wrapped up in stories about pigs as well. Mm-hmm. So um, in Assyria, there's this very famous demoness called Lamashtu. Uh, and she's a kind of baby snatcher. And she's always shown as this kind of pig-headed woman. And she suckles at her breasts uh, a dog on one breast and a pig on the other. So you can see that they're almost kind of interchangeable uh, in the in the ancient uh, world. Uh, and, of course, um, the dog is seen so much as the outsider that I suppose the ancient Israelites couldn't really imagine a worse end to life than being consumed by dogs. Mm. Um, you know, not mm. to have received a, a good burial is bad enough to be left out, you know, um, to, to decay, but to be de- eaten by dogs is something. And that, of course, is a kind of punishment reserved for the really wicked, like Jezebel mm. in First Kings, of course. You know, the dogs eat Jezebel, but only the palms of her hands and the soles of her feet <laughs> are left so that anybody could say, this was Jezebel. That's Oof. what we read in, in, in First Kings. Um, so yeah, the the idea of a dog as a pet does not really come into operation until the Greek period. Mm. Under the Greeks, we find our first sort of pet dogs, and the Romans kind of love them as well. Um, but then, I suppose it's worth saying that there were other ways of thinking about pets. People in ancient Israel and the Near East did have pets, but they could be things like uh, monkeys, baboons were mm. very popular as pets, gazelles. We know uh, we used as yes, absolutely, absolutely. Which again, sometimes you know, if you think about some of the imagery in, in Song of Songs, for instance, the gazelle is not necessarily needs to be a, a wild creature. So the, the so the beloved or the girl in Song of Songs doesn't need to be out in the wilderness, as it were. It's also she's a she's a tame thing that you can you know get close to as well. I think is the imagery that goes on there. Hmm. Um, the other thing, of course, that you have as pets in the ancient world is humans as well. Because really? here, of course, we're, we're dealing well. We're dealing with slave societies, you know. Oh, right. And yeah, it yeah, was yeah. absolutely common yeah. to have um, slaves as as pets, pampered slaves, pets, essentially. Um, so, in in Rome, for instance, in the Roman world, um, elites would have these children as as pets. Delizia, they were called the the delicious oh. ones, the little little children, you know. Um, and then probably, the, you know, at the age of ten or eleven or something, they they then return to the slave status proper um we, we see them even images of them with with leashes around their necks as well mm-hmm. uh, the same for dwarfs the same for hunchbacks oh. um you know in in this world of, of animal human um the the nexus between human and animal when it comes to a slave is actually very very narrow mm. indeed and in fact in that um, story I, I mentioned earlier Apollace's golden ass um he likens the the donkeys who are being mistreated to the human slaves who are being mistreated as well. You know, so there's no division there whatsoever, which again, you know, forces us to consider, reconsider what is our relationship to animals, you know, and and do we really have superiority over them when we Mm -hmm. ourselves can become pets as well? And of course, this thing was still going on, you know, in in the deep south in in America uh, in the the 19th century, you know, Um, you know, these, 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 these children really being used in, in that kind of way. Mm. So it's, it's quite remarkable, isn't it? That, you know, we, we, animal histories force us to think differently about our human histories as well, I think. Wow. Well, I have, okay. I have to, I have to ask as a, as a quote unquote cat person, since I have cats, <laughs> um, I, is there a single cat in the Bible? Does a cat show up ever? Is there, does anybody a own one. a cat? Not a one. Not one. Wow. Not one wow. cat. If, <laughs> if the Bible only existed, okay, if the Bible only exists in, in you know, post-nuclear holocaust, we will never have known of the existence of a cat, a cat. because there's not one mentioned. And isn't it crazy? Because all around... There are cats everywhere in Mesopotamia, in yeah. Egypt, of course. They're Egypt, really big yeah. business. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Greeks love them. The Romans love them. Not one mention in the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament at all. Not a thing. 
Well, it's really quite remarkable, and I can't explain why that is at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I obviously in in later medieval cultures, I mean, we have all sorts of ideas about cats and they also their magical kind of dark qualities and stuff. But that, that course, didn't yeah. did that not exist way back then? Or? No, I mean, you know, we you would have thought it would be a very obvious. Thing to talk <laughs> just about, hang out right? with a cat right? for five minutes. Yeah, you're like, something's absolutely. going on with this cat. Yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> but just they're written out of history. Absolutely, oh, that's too <laughs> really bad. strange. Yeah, really strange. Well, all right. So, Lloyd, something that we have been doing that we did not get to ask you your previous two times on the show is we've been asking all of our guests when they get a chance because you will all get a chance to get inside our functioning time machine um where and when would you like to go you have so many interests i don't i don't know wh- where you would oh, choose yeah yeah okay so uh let's just get some parameters on this mm. um i won't pick up any diseases will i do i stay sure. inside the bubble you could do it and i won't be spreading, yeah we can and i won't um, be spreading diseases. our tech <laughs> guy <laughs> yeah phil yeah, can make okay, you a special okay. suit yeah. and it's and, and okay, universal yeah. translator of course so you can speak. yeah of course of course yeah. okay well in that case i'd like to go to the court of Xerxes at Persepolis. <laughs> That's what I, uh, that is what I would really like to see. I would love to see what these guys were. Really well, wait, like. tell us, tell us more about how, what this looked like. Ah, or... uh, well, I mean, we get a good idea from it from the, from the book of Esther, of course, the opening chapters of Esther, where uh, Xerxes is throwing this huge banquet for all of his uh, ministers in his garden, which is lush with fruit trees and with silver columns and beautiful uh, awnings hanging over them to keep the sun off them. Mm. And everybody's eating fine foods and drinking wine. In fact, the order of the day is to get drunk there. I just think that sounds like a really good place to be. <laughs> I mean, antiquity can be a real tough place. So yes, I'm going to opt for Xerxes Palace on the day of the banquet. Oh, beautiful. And maybe mm. they'll serve you that some uh, more bugs and you can really I'm sure they would, actually. I'm sure they would. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lloyd. We're going to figure out another thing that you're an expert in. We'll have you back again. (laughs) But until then, thank you. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, listeners. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode of Biblical Time Machine. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Biblical Time Machine, consider supporting us by subscribing to our Time Travelers Club. Find out more in the episode description below.